All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my magnificent co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. And we also have uh, James Davalos, uh, who's a friend of BlockWorks uh, and works at Horizon Kinetics. I think, James, this is your first time on the show, but uh, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I've been a big fan of your guys for a long time. Now, great to have you here, James. And, and I'll do a quick reveal. You know, I, I got, uh, I, have, I, I appreciate the adjective, but I have the magnificent bull Bitcoin bull socks on today. Uh, clearly, spring has sprung. Things are good. Uh, we're going to talk about macro today, though, so uh, we won't talk about Bitcoin. But I, I am on my Bitcoin Friday pants with the orange going, so all good. Nice. Then I got we- the Carolina blue on top because I'm going to the uh, the bench seat dinner tonight with the team, uh, even though we're not doing that well this year. But maybe we'll have a stretch run that, that's good. We've got our fingers crossed for you, Mark. We've got our fingers Thank crossed. You. Um, all right. So uh, maybe I'm going to uh, turn it over to James here to kind of kick things off. James, uh, you were listening to our, our show uh, last week with Mark um, and had some sort of thoughts uh, on our position on inflation going into 2023 and beyond. Oh, um, let's just say, no, let's say it what it is, Michael. He just vehemently disagreed and like came out and said, hey, can I come on the show and disagree with, you know, Mark, because he's just wrong. I'm like, Yes, yes. Because right. remember, if two people always have the same opinion, one is unnecessary. So we'll have to have my favorite thing, dialogue and debate in search of truth. All right. I love it. I love it. Let's, uh, so James, with that, with that introduction, I'll turn it over to you, my friend. What do you, what do you think? So my way of describing it is a nuance to our views that are slightly divergent, but maybe... Uh... <laughs> Very politically correct. Um, but very different. I appreciate that. So we, Murray Stahl, our CIO, he was really early to recognizing inflation. So pre pandemic, actually, where he noticed, okay, money supply back then M2 was growing six or 7% a year rates were effectively zero. So you kind of see that, you know, Friedman esque money supply component, but we're not getting any inflation, but from a bottom-up basis, we also recognized that we were underinvesting uh, radically in a lot of raw materials that are absolutely vital to how the economy functions. So you got a slow burn in something that's going to create demand, and then you have this nearly critical insufficiency in spending for supply. So all of a sudden, pandemic hits, and you basically dump gasoline on a slow-burning fire. M2 grows. I think 40% year-over-year year was the top number. Um, inflation spikes. We actually launched a fund uh, in early 21. We were actually trying to launch it in 2020, but we couldn't get all the regulatory things done. An inflation beneficiaries fund. CPI, I think, was still under 2 And we basically spent an entire year arguing with people, look, inflation is coming. Don't you see what's happening right now? Uh, Inflation came and, you know, some people finally agreed with us. But now we basically then we kind of had the whole argument with the transitory crowd. And now we're kind of saying, look, we think that, yes, it's going to moderate. But you really need to think about what I think two things need to be discussed. One, what is transitory? And then number two is kind of what is the trajectory of different components of inflation look like going forward from here? So first yeah. and foremost, James, I mean, let me just let me come in for one second and kind of set a stage here because um, I do want to have the the debate and, and healthy debate on kind of future. But I, I, 
I, I hear you. And look, Murray, you know, I'm a worshiper. Uh, he is, he's one of the very best of, of the best. So I, I hate to disagree uh, with Murray. I hate to disagree with you, but, but I will argue, and I've been arguing, there is no inflation. That everyone keeps talking about inflation. There's no inflation. There is monetary devaluation. And to your point, we went from this, this normalized 6 7%, not normalized, it's like the fastest money supply growth in you know, decades, but no inflation, no, no CPI inflation. Well, right. The only reason we had CPI rise, remember CPI is a lagging indicator. It lags by about 16 months. The only reason it, it went up is because oil prices trebled from 40 to 120 and used car prices doubled because you couldn't get chips. So now both of those components have vanished. Oil prices are actually down year over year. Used car prices are down um, year over year. And actually they're down 43% in the last three months. Uh, still up over two years ago, but they're, but they're down. Um, and so to me, inflation is when there's excess demand for limited supply. That is not what happened, right? We just printed so much money that the value of it went away. I mean, I, I got dinner last night, <laughs> two little tiny pizzas and a few chicken wings, $44. That's not, those chickens aren't better. That pizza is actually smaller. That's shrinkflation. That, that, that's not inflation. That is my money has been devalued. So that's, that's, that's the premise that I want, you know, we can move past that, but that's, that's where I come at it. That I, I just don't believe the word inflation is, is applicable. And I, I think I'm glad you brought this up because I think that's why there's a definitional divide here. Why you, where you have two camps transitory saying I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And then structural saying I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Because I think they're arguing two completely different points. The, kind of the academic framework that you're talking about, absolutely, there's not inflation from the textbook standpoint. And, you know, people are saying transitory, there's no inflation. And, but these are the same people that were saying, you know, buy two year and 10 year bonds when yields were one and a half, one and a quarter. Look, you can't say you're right. Like everyone in this business gets a lot of things wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go off on a tangent here. I hate the argument that everyone get. you know, I'm trying to get 50% right. You're trying to get it, you know, better than 50%, but the only way you make money batting 50-50 is either you're when you're right, you're really right, and when you're wrong, you're not that wrong, or you manage your positions really well when you're right versus when you're wrong. So everyone gets things wrong, but I think Yeah, but James, to that point, <laughs> most of the people on Wall Street would have a massive celebration party if they could be 50%. Yeah. The right. average analyst on Wall Street is right 40% of the time. I can get, I can be right 50% with a coin. Yeah. <laughs> These guys are making millions of dollars and the fed, this is my favorite. The fed, which is chock full of PhDs is over. They've predicted GDP and inflation 247 times. I think we're up to now over like that's not possible unless you're trying to be wrong. Even then you should get it right occasionally, but to be over is, is staggering. So I, I was the 50, 50, right. It's just back to the famous, you know, Soros quote that Druck and Miller stole, but everyone says Druck, but it's Soros, right? It's not whether you're right or wrong. 
is how much money you make when you're right and how much money you lose when you're wrong. So exactly. I, I don't disagree with you. We should always aspire to be right. That that would be good. Um, the challenge is it's hard, uh, particularly in a world where things change and things get manipulated. But yeah, people who who said buy bonds um, at, at zero interest rates can't rationalize away what has happened with the reset. And you know, and look, I, w- I was one of them. I, th- I thought no chance, zero, I thought zero chance, which clearly wrong, that they'd raise 10 times, right? 10, 25 basis point hikes. Clearly that was, that was wrong. But I mean, you know this better than anybody. Those people aren't paid to be right. They're paid to get people to invest. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah. amen, amen, James. Yeah. You're, you're wise beyond your years. Mur- Murray has made me cynical at the ripe age of 39. Matt is no, that's impressive, and, and it's, it's absolutely true, yeah. right? I mean, what I always used to love is there was one firm I won't name them, but they had they had one strategist who was always bullish, one strategist who was always bearish, and one guy who flip flopped all the time, who so he could say he was right, and he would just follow the trend. Uh, ex post, not ex ante. Um, but yeah, they they are definitely trying to sell stuff, and um, but but I guess the the real point here is, as you said, we should aspire to be right, right? We should do the work, and we should try to be right. Um, and there's no chance any of us, and my, I said myself included, who didn't think there was any way they'd raise rates ten times last year, twenty five basis point hikes. Um, there's no way you're right if if you look at the, the great reset in rates. But again, I will argue that that great reset in rates isn't the, it didn't cause the inflation. I would say that, you know, the, the, the lowering of rates didn't cause the inflation. The raising of rates didn't stymie inflation. That's just my view. You just brought up another great point I want to touch on. But if we look at it from a, instead of looking at the, the rate of change, CPI right now, just a raw measure. We're not seasonally adjusting. We're just taking CPI today versus CPI pre-pandemic. Price levels are up about 16%. So even if we flatline, you still have almost 20% higher input costs that companies have to deal with in terms of their profit margins. And anyone who is trying to cut costs right now realizes it's really hard to tell somebody who you gave a raise during the pandemic, hey, I'm actually clawing that back. Or a supplier, like those pizzas and chicken wings, those suppliers are loath to then reset prices, even if you know maybe, the, maybe their procurement costs have gone down, but the truckers haven't gone down, the, their insurance premiums haven't gone down. And so this is what we're really focused on, is that the level is much higher, even if the rate of change is going to moderate, and that is going to have a profound impact on a lot of companies, a lot of individuals, and the economy uh, writ large. Um, I think kind of also when you look at it, there's two things you re- that we really need to break down is, okay, there's cyclical inflation drivers, and then there's structural. So within the cyclical drivers, 100% right. There was a shortage of cars, but there's no inability to produce cars. So there's plenty of used cars now in the market and prices are normalizing, probably going to go down a lot further, especially if a online car dealer that will remain nameless has to liquidate its inventory. Uh, semiconductors. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that be? Plenty something of- about Nirvana, something like Nirvana. <laughs> something like that. So, uh, semiconductors. 
there was a shortage. This actually played into cars. There's plenty of capacity. Now we're making more semis. Uh, capital goods. Uh, I moved to the suburbs during the pandemic and God bless you if you're trying to build a pool, buy a refrigerator, get a countertop, put new windows in, that there's no structural limitation to that. There was a surge in demand and that has all moderated. So that's cyclical, that's in CPI, that's gonna normalize and that's gonna moderate. The structural things are what we're more focused on where copper, for example. So copper is in almost everything in the world today. So obviously biggest uses are heavy construction, but it's in automobiles, it's in appliances, it's in the power grid. It's massively involved in wind, solar, EV charging. Even you know, bare, fairly moderate estimates say, look, we're gonna grow demand of copper by 80% over the next 20 years based on these factors plus organic growth, but no one's adding supply. And it takes 15 years for a new greenfield copper mine between permitting, say, infrastructure, smelting, um, you know, transportation. And that's the mismatch. And it's pretty profound in energy, in base metals, in agriculture, in fertilizer, because everybody, and I, you know, this might be going on to another parallel here with ESG, but Everybody believed that we can have this magical world where we don't need these things. So we stopped investing, but also capital markets. I believe in capitalism and capital said, hey, guys, you blew me up. I invested in copper, in iron, in fertilizer, in oil, in gas in 2005, 2006. Bricks are going to have demand forever. You guys got cheap capital. You flooded the world with capacity and it took you 15 years to break even. So money's been withdrawn for 15 years. And this kind of goes to the, um, you know, Ed Chancellor, um, um, Jeremy Hoskin capital cycle theory. Capital's been withdrawn. Returns are now going back up. But now the capital's not coming back in. So we think this structural inflation is going to be around on a secular basis, meaning years, if not decades, regardless of what those cyclical drivers do. And I think that that's going to be really important for uh, thinking about how the economy is going to work, corporate profits, and then even individual balance sheets, let alone the federal balance sheet, which again, is a whole nother can of worms. Uh, one, one, one more point about just structural inflation, then Mark, I want to get your response here. The other, the other driver, when I think about, we've talked about borrowing from low cost labor pools, like uh, you know, China, et cetera, but like even leaving aside that for a second, um, one other, you know, when I kind of think about structural drivers of inflation is just literally, if you just look at debt to GDP, Mark, you and I have talked about this on the show, James, you brought this up. Actually, when we were talking before the CBO congressional budget office, they project $1.6 trillion worth of deficit for the next 10 years, right? Unless there's going to be, and no one has any plans to pay that back, right? You don't see one politician talking about austerity or any way. And the only way that you can do you have, Mark, you've mentioned this multiple times. There are a set number of options that you have as a country, right? And yeah, four options. The most likely of that to me, right? The easiest is the, the soft default through inflation. So that doesn't get listed a lot of times as like a, a driver of inflation necessarily, but you have to imagine there are at least some smart policymakers that are sort of thinking, hey, inflation actually wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because we've got this enormous looming problem in the form of debt. So I just wanted to add that to the list then, Mark, yeah, to get your response I, I, to all Although, that. you know, it's interesting. I'll, I, do, I do say that, right? You can mm. pay the debt back. Never going to happen, right? You, you could tax 
all of the assets of all the people in the country, forget their income, just tax all their assets, can't pay the debt back. Okay. So you can't, you can't pay it back. Restructure. Problem is you got to take someone to take the other side. You got to have someone take the other side. People are dumping the bonds. They're not buying them. So that, that's not going to happen. You can default. Uh-uh. Unless you're a dictator in a small foreign country, you don't default. So Western, Western governments don't default on their debt because uh, then you get kicked out of office. And turns out politicians like to stay in office. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that trend, but that's a really interesting trend. Um, and now we got a lot of octogenarian politician, um, or at least septuagenarian. So, well, I shouldn't make fun of this since I'm about to become a sexagenarian. <laughs> that's, that's a funny word, uh, sexagenarian uh, in May. But, um, you know, the, the fourth option of soft default through inflation, there is another option. And, and, and I, it, it literally just hit me as you were talking, Michael, that um, Kyle Bass, who's, who's a friend and uh, has been screaming, right, for, for more than a decade that Japan had this problem, right? Massive debt, massive deficits, budget doesn't balance. Therefore, their, their debt has got to collapse. And, right. and then, and, you know, interest has got, you know, they got to deflate their, or devalue their way out. Um, but they've had no inflation, mm. literally no inflation, like none, zero for two and a half decades. Why? Well, because it turns out the central bank can just buy all the bonds and then it becomes self-owned and you do a reset. And I, I, that, that's what's coming. You know, that, that's why QE is happening. The Bank of Japan just did the largest QE in over a decade. No one's talking about it, right? The yen went from 150 something to 128. I mean, they injected more ca- and China is QEing, right? Not talking about it, but their credit impulse has gone up. So the amount of of money printing that is coming to and and the thing about that is that should do all the things that James just outlined in terms of structural increase in prices. But then you throw on top of it the demographic problem, and you know I, somebody charted, sent out a chart the other day that industrial production in the United States has been dead flat for almost 15 years. And I was like, what? It's shocking to you that 65 to 85 year old people are not as productive <laughs> as 45 year old people. That that's a surprise. I mean, they're perfectly nice people. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not bank. I'm not bashed on seniors, right? I'll be one you know, sooner than, than uh, you guys. And, but they're not productive and they, they will never be productive. And they don't spend as much and they don't buy as much and they don't work as much. And it, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon when you, when you look at industrial production flat, like no growth, no. And, and this is not even, you know, it's kind of like retail sales, right? The, the data is even bad. Retail sales doesn't adjust for population growth. Like, what do you mean? How, how can you do that? <laughs> well, of course, retail sales go up if there's more people. Oh, well, we don't adjust for that. Or when they do retail sales and they use gasoline, gasoline prices go up because oil prices go up and they say retail sales went up. People didn't buy more gasoline. They bought less at a higher price. That's not increased demand. Anyway, I, I digress. 
But yeah, Mike, to your point, the 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 deficit and the current debt to GDP, the people that think we can magically grow our way out of it and pay back the debt like the post-World War II era, you need massive workforce growth and or massive productivity growth, which I would argue are almost impossible, if not impossible. But here's impossible. Yeah, I impossible. Second that I second that <laughs> here's a good data point. In 1999, where the internet was just becoming useful, you know, instead of just like people like buzzing around on Netscape and AOL Messenger, it was becoming actually useful for businesses. Over the ensuing 20 years through 2010, productivity, so output per labor hour, grew 36% in aggregate for a 300 and, excuse me, 3.2% CAGR. So that's 320 basis points of tailwind to GDP growth from productivity from this thing called the internet. Unless you know of another internet that's going to come around in the next couple of uh, years, that productivity is not happening again. Labor force, demographics, you know, it's simple math. That's not going to happen. So we can't pay back the debt. It's, it's a fact. So inflate is the easiest option from a you know pol politician standpoint. No one's going to say, "Look, I'm going to spend less from a fiscal basis." So that's, I think, the end game. And you know, if you believe in that end game, I think that you know, obviously, Bitcoin has a very, very high allure to you if you understand those dynamics long term and can just stomach the volatility as all this stuff gets kind of processed through the system today. But kind of going back to other structural factors, people in this business love to look at the past and then extrapolate it into the future as if it's going to be like a fact. So, okay, five-year backtest, 10-year backtest, 20-year backtest, this is going to happen in the future. Almost every single one of these strategies that's based on a backtest, the second it goes live, it breaks the trend. But Steve Bregman wrote a commentary for Horizon that touches on this. What if the last 10, 20, 30 years was actually the anomaly and today's going back to a more normalization. So what are those trends that were anomalies? One, globalization. We had a huge wave of globalization over the past 30 years, which gave us disinflationary forces from cheap labor, cheap commodities and efficiencies of global trade and supply chains. All of that's ending or reversing today. We're onshoring to make businesses more resilient as opposed to more efficient. We're competing with non-OECD countries for commodities because we're, we're exiting an era of abundance, entering an era of scarcity, and we're competing with them for labor where, their labor, where their labor cost is actually going up and they want it for domestic uses. You kind of add on top of that productivity, which has been disinflationary for 30 years, certainly the last 20 with the advent of the internet, and all of these things kind of added to this era of declining interest rates, rising profit margins, compressing risk premium, and basically every risk asset just went straight up for 20 to, not straight up, but you, you see the point I'm saying. And bonds went almost straight up because interest rates went down for almost that entire period. We think that's the anomaly. And now we're going back to a more normal world, a normal economy where Inflation is going to be higher, albeit volatile, and profit margins are going to be rewarded to very good business models and very good assets, not just somebody who can raise money at 2% and then allocate it at 5 and, you know, have a company. What's going on, guys? Want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Curve. They are the one-stop shop credit cards that helps you take control 
of your personal finances. Here's the reason that I personally love this company. These guys are all about helping you manage and maximize your personal cash flow. We have been talking for the last couple of months about everything that the Fed is doing with raising interest rates. Obviously, this is not, no one's got a crystal ball. This is not financial advice, but I think it makes sense more than ever now for companies to be managing their cash flow and for you as an individual to be managing your personal cash flow as well. Curve makes it super, super easy to do that. Even I can do it. As a technological Philistine, they aggregate all of your spending information in one place. They make it super easy to plan. But they actually go one step further than that. They have a very cool feature called Go Back in Time, which allows you to switch payments from one card to another. So if you have an unexpected expense crop up, boom, you can move that over to your credit card, free up some cash. Or maybe you learned too late that you could have earned more rewards by spending on a different card. Boom, Curve has you covered there too. And the last thing that I'll say is, if you click the link at the bottom of this episode, you'll get $20 in Curve Cash, but you'll only get that if you click the vanity link at the bottom of this episode. Plus, that gives me the credit as well. So thank you, Curve. I appreciate you caring about cash flow. Guys, click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell my I sent you. I, I want to make the point uh, just to build on, I think, something both of you are saying. And actually, we had Michael Michael Cow came on the, the show to do an interview this week. Um, and his his framework for inflation is it kind of dovetails with everything that we're saying now, which is the, you know, his position was that kind of we were short globally energy. And that was a huge, you know, that was what kind of kicked off inflation, right? Because we basically had an, an enormous amount of demand come back online. We couldn't meet the supply and that the, the inflation started with energy, but then it leapt over to stickier components of CPI. And one thing, Mark, you and I kind of, we were looking at, because CPI came out last week and we were kind of dissecting like goods versus uh, services inflation. And you can see goods inflation, everything James, you were saying about cyclical moderation, like used car prices are going down. Everything's kind of going down. But what's extremely sticky is uh, is the uh, the services part of inflation, and I know a lot of a lot of that is shelter, and that's that's going to lag. But there's still the the wage you know part of of that, which is basically core services x uh, x shelter is still you know extremely sticky, and that's yeah. that's the part that's like harder to measure because like the psychology of inflation is still here. Yeah, the shelter the shelter one ugly it's going to be mm-hmm. ugly and 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 look, we, we talked about it you know according to zillow the house i sit in in chapel hill went up 40 percent over 12 months and my house didn't grow and didn't get more efficient you know i say the same thing every time it's going the other way and mm-hmm. and and it's not and housing prices aren't going down two percent three percent five percent they're going to go down heard it here first 40 to 50 percent we're going to mm-hmm. see one of the most massive corrections in housing because of what happened to interest rates. And so here's the, here's the interesting dynamic. So uh, interest costs on government debt have never, okay, never, let that sink in, never, right? We've been a republic for a long time, we've had debt for a long time, have never been more than 3.2% of the budget. I'm sorry, 3.2% of GDP, not the budget, 3.2% of GDP. Never. They, they troughed a couple of years ago at 1.2, something like that. It was 1.3. Um, we are rapidly heading back and closing in on 3.2. It doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So the, the challenge for, for all of us is this idea that, you know, you had the cult of Kelton come in and say, oh, 
You can spend as much as you want. Deficits don't matter. Just print the money and it'll be fine. And, you know, they use, they use this, this, this analogy of a sink, right? You put the stopper in the bottom and you fill it up with new money. And if inflation gets out of control, you just remove the stopper and drain some of the liquidity. Okay, that's a great idea, except those government bonds, I think it's 47, doesn't really matter, but call it half, of the government bonds are sub one year in duration. Okay, so all of those are ratcheting from onesies and twosies to threesies and foursies and fivesies. What does that do to the deficit? Makes it go up. What does it do to the ability to print more money? Probably restricts it. So I, I struggle with that, which is um, certainly, I would say, a restrictive force for rising rates. Because if you think about it, if I have to issue more bonds because my deficit's bigger, what should I have to do to interest rates to entice buyers? Mm. I would have to raise them. But Rob Arnott writes on this, and, and I, don't, I don't know if we would have Rob on because, uh, you know, he's just too smart. Um, I don't even like to be on the same. You know, you guys are smart, but he's, he's just like way too smart. I don't like to be on the same show as him. But um, I'm just kidding around. But, but Rob is really smart. And he write, writes about this that he didn't think that's going to happen. Because the challenge for me on all of this inflation talk is there's a couple trends, two trends that are, I won't say perfect, but statistically they're perfect, which is working age population growth and interest rates. Okay, Working age population growth and interest rates are perfectly correlated. And when working age population growth was rising in the 70s, when all the people that came back from the war were reaching that that uh, perfect working age, that and it's not just working age like twenty five, you, you go to work, but it's it's that forty five to sixty five year old, uh, really productive, really you know firing on all cylinders consumer, and interest went up. Since then, since the early eighties, working age population growth has been in decline, and it's accelerating. Right, working age population growth over the next twenty years is going to trough at close to zero. Right, so and GDP is equal to working age population growth plus productivity. So absent what James talks about, some three percent tailwind to you know like is is Web three going to be as big for a tailwind as Web one and Web two? Tough. Maybe, but tough. So absent that, we're going to have sub 2% GDP growth for a long time. And then here's the, here's the kicker. What Rob says is the reason you're not going to see interest rates continue up is 65 to 85-year-old people don't buy stocks. They buy bonds. And so you won't have to raise rates to attract buyers because everybody is going to be cashing and they're going to be forced to cash out. Like I think... Last year, no, it was two years ago. Two years ago, net was the first time in since well, since 1986 when they passed the law that the demographics we got to 71 and a half. And so every single day, right, for the next 17 years, a whole cohort of people are going to turn 71 and a half is when you're forced to take money out of your IRA 
as opposed mm. to put it in. So there's going to be net outflows of stocks, net inflows into bonds, and that's going to put continuing pressure on rates. So that's the only part that I, I struggle with is demographics or destiny. No chance we can change the working age population growth. Can't even fix it with, you know, we could open up the borders, which we should, and like we should send planes to India and China to the best universities and get all their PhDs to come, come live here and work here and, and grow businesses, but we're not going to do that. But I don't know. I, I don't see how we get out of the demographic destiny of rapidly declining productivity and, and working age population growth, therefore GDP and rates. I mean, yeah, there's, I've, I've, I don't think that anyone can really tell with any certainty yet, but there's an argument that the demographic bomb, which is a fact, is would actually be inflationary as there's less labor and less labor productivity, which kind of plays back into this margin compression story. So, I mean, it, that, that's a tough one. And I think that's a real, that's going to be one of these known unknowns that people are going to have to keep a really close eye on. But mm. I, I actually want to, touch on the comments you made on real estate, because we knew a couple, like a month or two ago that the Blackstone re-gated redemptions. Yesterday, we found out Starwood gated and we found out KKR gated. So we have a uh, bridge lending uh, team at Horizon. They have a small fund, really interesting. But so then they're down in Miami at a multifamily conference uh, earlier this month. So I had no idea people were playing this game. So what people were doing is they were going out and buying a multifamily property anywhere from a three to a four, maybe max a five cap, but let's say three to four during like, you know, peak free money. They're borrowing at SOFR plus 200. So let's say they were borrowing at two and a half and banks, oh, multifamily is impregnable. So I'm going to give you an 80% LTV. So they've got an 80% LTV interest only loan at two and a half floating. And their properties yielding, let's be generous and say three and a half. So the game that everyone was playing was, I've got this two to three year IO loan. I'm going to go in, I'm going to paint the building. I'm going to put in a new refrigerator and I'm going to put carpet in and I'm going to raise the rents. Then I'm going to have higher net operating income. I'm going to basically go to a bank and get permanent financing off of my higher NOI, pull out my equity. And now I have all this cash flow for free and rinse, wash, repeat. People got really rich doing it. But when the music stops, you have a big problem because, oh no, SOFR is now, you know, what's, what's one year? Three and a half, four, plus 200. So now you're carrying a property yielding three and change at six and change. And you have basically this liquidity mismatch. And then this is what really terrified me. Everybody at this conference is running around to bridge lenders saying, hey, I need one year extension. It's like, okay, well, what's one year? What's a what's a one year extension going to do? I don't know. The Fed's going to the Fed's going to pivot in the back half of this year, so just give me a one year extension, bridge me for a year. Sofer's going to go down, and it's all going to bail me out, and everything's going to be fine. That is happening with these smaller people that are doing this rinse, wash, repeat. But it's also happening at the biggest levered private equity firms in the country with this multifamily thing. And it's just like, where, where, like four and a half caps to, in this environment when your funding costs might be six and a half, seven. So, like, I had no idea this was going on to the extent it was going on. And now seeing that these redemptions are being capped everywhere makes me think, like, wow, could this be the 
Bear Stearns credit funds in the spring of 2007. I hope yes. not. <laughs> yes. No, no. Look, this, no, this, and, and, and that spring of 07. And it's so funny listening to you talk about this because it's, it's just a different version of, yes, it's actually kind of why I'm, I'm sitting here today. I mean, Morgan Creek would, would be nothing really if not for that 2006, 2007 period where we just, we just got that right. Right. You know, mm. there's, there's this funny line that when people would leave Julian's shop and Julian was my mentor when I worked at UNC and people would leave and he'd say, Julian, do you have any advice for me as I start my new business? He'd say, yeah, make sure in the first two years you get lucky. <laughs> uh, that, that's really good advice, really hard to follow. And, but it took us three. So we, we launched in 04 and, and, you know, we, I, I've told the story. So we had this client. He, st- he founded J Crew, sold it to TPG, retired with 300 million bucks. He moved to Incline Village. Well, he moved to Incline Village first, then sold the business so he could get the tax break and bought this big house. And we're talking to him. And he was 83 years old, quoted Sartre, great guy. He passed away finally, but um, amazing guy. And uh, he calls us one day. He was madder than a wet hen. I mean, he was pissed. I'm like, Arthur, what is, what is wrong? He says, I deserve to live here. I'm like, well, well, of course you do. What are you talking about? He says, I sold my business for $300 million. I bought this house. The average house in Incline Village is $12 million. I deserve to live here. The guys on either side of me, 35 years old, two kids. There's no way they can afford to own these houses. This ends badly. You find me a way to get short. Wow. I'm like, okay. And we went out and we met John Paulson and John Burbank and Kyle Bass and and we put 10% of our client assets with six different managers who were all short subprime in 2006. Mm. First month, first month, we gave the money to John. You remember the movie, you remember the scene in the movie where mm-hmm. the guys, the bankers are saying, oh, we got this? Down 13%. We're down 13% in the first month. Clients tearing their hair out thinking you guys are so idiotic, right? This is going on forever. Now, the rest is history and John was up 500 and something percent and, and life was good. But, but the point was I had a friend, right? Who was condo flipping in Miami. Kind of same thing, right? He had 20, 20 condos. Bear Stearns happens, puts them out for sale. Says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a 50% off sale. No bids. Oof. Not wow. no offers. I mean, not no sales, no offers, no, no, nothing, nothing. And they all got foreclosed and the bank's bought. Now, all those condos have been sold. If you go down to Miami, everybody's, you know, living large, but it took a decade. And exactly what James described, it's coming. You look all around Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I live, there are a Driver nine iron, well, not my driver nine iron, but driver nine iron for me, there are 20 apartment things that all happen with this special opportunity zone thing, this nonsense where, you know, rich people got a tax credit for, you know, backing an apartment complex. So many apartment complexes, empty, empty. Yeah. The opportunity zone thing was people love to point to PPP as a form of grift. I would love it if someone did an analysis of opportunity zones and who actually. No, they did the whole episode of Billions. There was three episodes of Billions where they went down and and told you this Mm -hmm. is total grift for billionaires. I mean, 
crazy. An investigative yeah. reporter could could win a Pulitzer for that, probably. So, so just to put a put a bookend here on on what you guys are saying, is there, there's still risk in in the in the real estate market, and you know, a, a lot of people, you know, we've talked about it on the show in the, in the you know in the context of sort of single family, uh, you know, real estate, basically like people's homes and, and stuff like that, but. You know, I, I'm not, I honestly, I kind of skimmed the headlines for the read. I saw KKR, uh, there was a similar situation. And so what, what type of real, is that commercial real estate that, that, that's impacting? And then like, what are the overall implications of that? Right? Like the, the scary part, right? Basically my takeaway, James, from what you were just saying and, and you, Mark, is basically there's extreme, uh, you know, real estate is extremely interest, interest rate sensitive. We had extraordinarily low interest rates that a bunch of enormous, uh, you know, real estate managers levered themselves to. And now that rates are up, uh, you know, potentially they might have to liquidate holdings or they're in trouble and everyone's counting on a pivot in 2020. Is that the basic gist of what we're talking about? It's like, what are the implications of if we don't get a pivot? Are these guys all underwater? And, and if so, like what happens in that situation? Remember that picture of, of Mr. T? Pain. <laughs> Pain. But, yeah. And I know most people listening to this are like, Mr. T, who's Mr. T? Google it. Mr. T, amazing, amazing, amazing actor. But Mike, to your- In, in, air, quotes, in air quotes, in air quotes. To your direct, uh, I know Blackstone's portfolio is mostly multifamily and they, they're in the Sunbelt where they tell you all these reasons why it's advantaged. And they're really smart, really good real estate investors. I bet that their properties are much better than your average apartment building, but- you know, gravity is gravity. Um, I'm not sure where what Starwood and KKR's portfolios look like, but the real pain at, that this bridge lender was was seeing was was focused in multifamily. But to your point, and this kind of this actually there, there's parallel to this with okay, what is inflation? What is a pivot? So a pivot where they pause, these guys are still toast. Because they can't, they're done with there, a with a pause. Say that again, James. Say that again, because that's the point that people have to realize. A pause. Everyone is still toast in the back half of this year. <laughs> yeah, that's well, what that, no one gets. That? Can you explain that to me? So, okay, what is a pivot? In my mind, a pivot means, oh my gosh, the system is collapsing. We've got to cut, 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 cut. I think what's more likely going to happen, and Neil Kashari wrote a op-ed on his Medium uh, blog, which basically said, we're going to get another one or two in, and then we're going to pause for an extended period of time, hire for longer, and wait for it to flow through the system. So you're yeah. the one reader of that blog. <laughs> I, I, I'm so psyched to meet you. That's so cool. I'm just like, because yeah. I was somebody sent it to me, and I'm just like, the guy who was saying we need to stay at zero through 24 or whatever he was saying before is now saying, I got to at least see what he's saying. He talks about like Uber surge pricing. I was like, all right, anyway. Um, but that is doomsday because a pause at these rates, everything still breaks and everyone's banking on materially lower rates and materially um, looser policy in the back half of this year. But Let's just assume you're borrowing at SOFR plus 250, your funding costs are six and a half, and you're in a property yielding four. If they simply pause, you're not bailed out in the back half of this year. You're still yeah. underwater. And then, you know, good luck finding someone to extend that for another year. Yeah, the extend and pretend, it's just, it's just not going to happen. And I mean, it'll happen with some, right? Like if you're a friend of Jamie Dimon, 
you'll get an extend and pretend fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of those guys, you know, look, Barry, Barry has lots of friends in high places. He's actually one of the smartest guys I've ever met Barry, um, at Starwood, but, uh, and his partner, Jay Sugarman, definitely one of the five. So we're talking about Barry Silbert there for a second. <laughs> oh, I was like, no, you got to no, clarify no, on this no, podcast. No, no. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel for Silbert. I do. I mean, visionary, early, but no, not, no, no. Barry uh, Sternlich, uh, definitely mm. one of the smartest people I've ever met. But his partner, Jay Sugarman, even smarter. I mean, like super smart. But but even those guys don't have an answer for what James just described. Uh, a pause is not a pivot. Uh, and it'll get hyped up in the press that that's a pivot, but it's not. And stocks in a short period of time might rally. So what's interesting about this is while while we differ, while James and I differ on kind of this, this construct of, of inflation and what it means, we are in violent agreement on the impact of structurally higher costs. And I will argue it's just a devaluation of the currency as opposed to inflation, but that's just, that's just semantics actually. But structurally higher costs will compress margins. Falling demand from this demographic time bomb will depress uh, profits. This deglobalization let's hope that, that, that the Websters don't get the depopulation they want. So the deglobalization is bad enough, but the depopulation is worse. Um, but all of that says the people who, who want to hope, like best Bed Bath & Beyond was up like 100% and GameStop was up 80%. And, and my favorite one uh, to pick on Peloton right? Was up 80% in, in five trading days. Oh, because the bull market's back. Mm. It ain't back. It ain't back. I've got a, I've got a, um, our, our newsletter writer, Byron had to, I, I stepped in for him one, one week or one day this week. And I'd love to get a, you know, we're, we talk, we're talking about the sort of shift in environment secularly, right? Where there are these like, there's low, you know, very slow growth, very deflationary environment for a long period of time. And that, that allowed the Fed to basically, you know, continue to lower interest rates and step in whenever there was sort of trouble in the market. And that's what like gave rise to this idea of like the Fed put, right? And that's frankly what we're watching still play out, right? At the, the highest, most sophisticated level of investors in the United States. One, you know, with the return of inflation, is it possible that we've seen that dynamic shift? And there's actually a, you know, for a long time, it's like bad news equals good news. Well, now it seems like this could be like a good news equals bad news type environment, right? Where Powell is extremely concerned with the labor market. He wants stocks to go down. So whenever there's like a bit of good news, right? Or bad, like the stocks go up and ultimately that paradoxically is bad news, right? Because when Powell sees stocks going up, that my interpretation of that is like, okay, I've still got room to run. I've still got leeway to continue to be more hawkish, right? Because, you know, stocks going up on bad news is signs that I haven't finished my work here. Do you guys, and that's almost like we've replaced a Fed put with a cap on asset prices. What do you guys think about that theory? Is there water there or is that is that not how you think it, it works? Uh, you know, I, I think it's really complicated, but obviously Powell, need, Powell obviously needs to see inflation come down for political reasons, for legacy reasons. If you're looking forward, you're you know, like Mark brought up before, like owner's equivalent rent. 
these the, you're, they, they know it's a trailing measure. They know all these softening data points. Some people are jawboning about it, but you know, they also, I think part of the mandate is to like not let the you know, profitless tech basket just rip again. I think th those animal spirits do have to be crushed, but there's a, like, there, there's just a, a big, the, there's very little they can do here about the bigger problem. There's almost nothing they can do, but they're not doing it. So everything that they're doing is around suppressing asset prices and ultimately suppressing demand. That's a, that's a bandaid. A surgical fix to the problem is get us more labor that's productive, get us more oil, get us more gas, get us more copper, get us more food. We are doing nothing to solve the supply side. All we're doing is a Band-Aid to try to fix short-term demand. So what does that mean? You know, there's going to be something that cracks in the system. I don't know what it is. I don't know when it will be. Personally, I'm shocked that nothing has, quote, broken yet. I was in Mark's camp. Yeah. I said, there's no way we're getting in all these hikes. I would have thought something would have just completely crumbled, but yeah. maybe there's a lag. And I think maybe you're seeing that in the multifamily market. But lo and behold, something's going to happen. They're going to have to ease because they can't let credit go. The lesson everyone learned in 08, 09, they don't care if tech stocks go to zero. But once you start seeing solvency, they're like, wow, this can spiral and waterfall really fast. The banks are fortresses today, but who knows where, the, does the shadow banking system have that? Is it insurers? I don't know. But when that happens, they're going to have to ease again. And then when that happens, I think you get a much more violent second wave of inflation. And that's just where public policy is. And, you know, Mark, you mentioned like the smartest people in the room, but one of the people that I'm just awed by is John Arnold of Centaurus Partners. So for people that aren't aware, he's probably the most prolific natural gas trader of all time. And gas trading is highly, I'd call it scientific, because you're looking at injections, you're looking at withdrawals, you're looking at weather patterns, you're looking at exports, like they have satellite data looking at Freeport LNG. But this was years ago where John realized prices were too high. A hedge fund up here in New York and Connecticut was betting on spreads between injection season in the summer and then um, drawing season in the winter, John's like, no way, made billions of dollars, this hedge fund collapse. Like, guy's brilliant. He was quoted in the Financial Times and he said, what if, just what if the past 30 years of globalization and productivity gains and all these other variables that were disinflationary allowed this wildly irresponsible fiscal policy to not be inflationary and that's not happening anymore. Yep. No, mm. and, and to this point, John, John is definitely one of the five smartest people I've ever met. He was a client for many years. And uh, I have a great story about this. So, you know, he, he was the guy that actually made money at Enron. Everything else was fake, but John crushed it. And it was definitely scientific, but he also had some edges. You know, my big thing is edge, hashtag edge. John had an edge. His, I think I think I have this right. His college roommate or college friend actually ran the Henry Hub, and so John could call him and and actually find out what was happening with flows and injections and and but but he was maybe the greatest commodities trader of all time. And there have been some great commodity traders, but John, you know, created a six billion dollar fortune in a short period of time, and and now has a great foundation. And, and John's great, but it's funny. On the day before that 
other guy. So there's this, you know, famous guy, you know, New York hedge fund. I'm sitting with John in, in Houston. And I said, how are you doing? He says, it's the happiest day of my life. I'm like, why? <laughs> I'm like, why? And he says, you know the angler fish? I'm like, yeah. You mean the thing that, you know, it's got the thing on its head? And you like, yep, that's me. I got this guy. And I'm just sitting there with my mouth wide open and he's coming and he's biting at my thing and I'm going to eat him. And the next day to Billy, to Billy, he made $2 billion the next day. It was in the paper. This guy went out of business. He had to resign. They had to shut down the hedge fund. I'm like the angler fish. And, and what's great about John is you could pitch anything to this guy, anything at all the most esoteric strategy. And before you finish the description, he would ask you the hardest question that challenged your thesis. I'm like, what the, how can you, you don't know anything about that. No, this, because he, his brain just works exactly as James described. He thinks about the linkages of a process, reverse engineers it in real time. And so, so what if you change one of those variables? And that is how great investors really do it. But but no, we can't all do that. But he, again, truly dazzling. And remember, we, everyone. Other more James, we hang out yeah. with all the well, other than Cash Carey, who I don't, I don't yeah. think if I'd ever read him. But you know, we hang out with you. Get to hang out with Murray all the time, which yeah. again makes me very jealous. Remember, everyone said John couldn't make money if he left Enron. Ah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. But so you know, I, I think to to kind of put a bow on this, compounded at three hundred percent for the next three years. Yeah. Let that sink in. 300%. I recommend anybody, everyone, he, he speaks very rarely, but I think there's one podcast he did with Chuck Yates. I recommend everyone listen to it. And then his business partner, Bill Perkins, where there's an incredible story about him buying the Sugar Shack painting um, at Sotheby's or uh, Christie's, which is incredible. I recommend both podcasts. But to put a bow on this, the world that we all see how do you, what do you own? And I think based on kind of the end game to kind of take the Grant Williams um, thesis mm -hmm. here, I think you have to own hard assets. You have to own tangible, finite stores of value. What do we own? We own a lot of energy. We own a lot of precious metals, base metals, agriculture, land companies, things like that, that have this staying power, that have this value. And, you know, this thesis I think is a also very strong um, conclusion for Bitcoin as well. Yeah. So, you know, look, I, here's the great thing. So we can have disagreements, but then we end on this violent agreement. Mm. And I know we got to wrap because somebody's got a hard stop, but look, I talk about this all the time in the kids game, rock, paper, scissors, paper beats rock, right? Not in real life. In real life, rock beats paper. And that is going to be writ large over the next decade. Paper is going to burn and rock. And, and, and look, rock, gold, metals, copper. They use 40 pounds of copper in a car. 40 pounds. That's a lot. I mean, that, that's a lot of copper. And, and the EV, it's probably even higher than 40, but it's huge. And so stuff 
So my, my thing is hashtag get real assets that is, uh, and, and, uh, rock beats paper. So those two themes I think will make people a lot of money. And, and the last one back to, to, you know, uh, the oil patch, uh, Anyone who thinks like I think Kathy, Kathy was quoted saying that that oil demand was going to collapse to 70 million barrels a day by I think she said 2030. I don't want to get it totally wrong, but maybe it's 2025. But I think it was 2030. We're at 101 projected to be 104. It ain't going to collapse. Every year, every year, we have to discover a new Saudi Arabia. That's hard. And now no one's giving anyone any money to do it. Exactly. And so I, and, 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 and that actually goes against everything I believe about actual inflation. So, you know, point to James this morning. Another example just about this capital cycle and you know, coal should not really be used anymore whatsoever. Gas plants. <laughs> not ever. Yeah. Gas is cheaper, it's more abundant, it's more efficient, and it's cleaner. But look up Newcastle coal prices, where Newcastle coal prices have are still high. I mean, they were incredibly high over the past two years because these non-OECD countries, uh, this is thermal coal, by the way, which is for power generation, which needs to be distinguished from metallurgical coal, which is used in steelmaking. But these people, India, Indonesia, China, non-OECD emerging countries, they need power, they need heat, and they are going to use the most abundant and cheapest way to do that. And so you're seeing new coal plants going on every day because it's reliable, it's abundant, and it's cheap-ish. And that's just what's, that's what's going to happen until you know, we figure out a longer-term solution so if we're still burning that much coal, the tail on oil and gas demand is, it's not even decades, it's centuries. Yeah. And, and to that point, look, the worst thing you can do for human health is burn thermal coal. Mm. Burning thermal coal releases mercury into the air, which causes hard tumor cancers. If you draw a cloud around where coal-powered plants are, like the south end of Long Island. You've all seen those red and white three smokestacks. Draw a cloud around that. 85% higher incidence of hard tumor cancers. Okay? Indiana, where I used to live, 85% higher incidence of hard tumor cancers. China, highest incidence of hard tumor cancers. And so the other thing you want to do, because we're not going to stop burning the coal because it's really cheap and governments don't give a crap about their people, uh, is biotech. So you, you need the immunotherapy drugs, which can, and it, it's harder for heart tumor, like breast cancer, brain cancer, brain tumors. Um, but on the blood tumors, the immunotherapies uh, are, are actually working. So biotech is a great uh, pairing with, with those uh, coal investments. Can I, I I'm, I've, we've got to wrap here in, in a couple of minutes, but I, want to leave you guys with a statistic that will make you glad that we actually live because we, sometimes we this comes across as a little negative and there are going to be all these problems. So I'm in Savannah, Georgia right now for our company offsite. We were doing a tour of like Savannah's the most haunted city in America. And we did this, this tour. And one of the haunted buildings that we saw was a place where surgeries used to get done. You want to guess, you want to guess what the anesthetic that they used back around the time of like the revolutionary revolutionary kind of war, like 17, 18. Yeah, it was alcohol. 
Exactly. And actually, <laughs> they, they would, they would, they would strap you in. So they'd take you to this house. They'd get you, they'd get you basically hammered. They'd strap you into leather. It was actually a form of entertainment for the townspeople. Town people would come and like, it would be like a party and people would come down and watch the surgery. Uh, people didn't know that germs existed back then. So the sign of a good surgeon was a bunch of blood from old patients on like their smock, like white, white smock, no good. An inexperienced surgeon. You want to guess what the mortality rate was on surgery? 50. I don't, I don't even want to know. 35% of people survived. And that huh. was, that was for a good doctor. That was not even the average. That was the doctor of this particular, which was a very good doctor. It was actually sub 30. Isn't that? Yeah. So you know what? We live in actually a pretty good period of time. I, oh, I, amen. We, amen. We live best I, time live in history until tomorrow, and uh, exactly. tomorrow will be better. And 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 you know that is why we Bitcoin. Uh, throw that in there. Um, but but no no it, it's it's why um, you know again sometimes this comes across as sinister Saturday, but it's not. It's spectacular Saturday. It's super Saturday. Saturday. It is the future is definitely bright, and. The fact that we have, you know, immunotherapy drugs that can solve cancers is is amazing. Um, yeah. The fact that you know we have anesthetic is is amazing. The 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 thought that's why the innovation thesis is so seductive because humanity, America, capitalism, it's incredible and it's one of the best things ever for all of our lives, all of our kids' lives, all of our our grandkids' lives. So yeah, it's a very wonderful thing, but you know, I think you have to look at what is the actual like net benefit. So yeah, immunotherapies like, you know, I'm rooting wholeheartedly for all of that, but I also think that these profitless business models, you know, that's not innovation. That's, you know, selling doll selling dollars for 50 cents was a lot what essentially a lot of these businesses were doing. Yeah, there's grift. Yeah. Look, 40% of Russell 2000 companies don't make money. They need to go away. And here's the thing. I, I will say the, the last thing on interest rates, um, zero interest rates and negative bond rates was a travesty. Capitalism, which is the, one of the great forces of mankind, right? Profit. It's not bad. It's not evil. It is good. Uh, doesn't work with negative interest rates. It just doesn't. And the fact that there was $20 trillion of negative yielding bonds, which have now all been erased. So as painful as this readjustment is, but we have to remember why there were zero In nominal rates. terms, though. In real terms, a lot of them are still negative. Right? Um, bonds. Yeah, that's a good point. No, that's a very good point. In, in, mm. in some places, yeah, you still, have, you still have negative real rates. That's right. Um, but the bond yields themselves. The, the physical, there, there's an expectation that you'll be paid something if you loan someone your money. Yeah. The idea yeah. of giving your money to a government and paying them to hold it was insane, right? Or negative yields on bank savings accounts. But capitalism breaks down. And I'll argue it breaks down under 2%, forget negative. But having that incentive back, and look, we don't want 22% rates like the 70s. That, I don't think that's going to happen either. Um, but what we need is this, this acknowledgement that capital today has value and capital invested for tomorrow will have more value. And, and that's what we're back to. And as, as painful as it is for those punters buying those properties that James is talking about, um, they're going to die. The other area that we haven't talked about that I don't, I want, we don't have time to talk about, <laughs> yo, talk about multifamily problems. How about office? 
I'm at 12% utilization, y'all. 12, 12%. You know, most of my team doesn't want to come back to the office. So for the first time, we're thinking, do we break our lease? Do we renegotiate? I mean, that's a real, and we're not the only ones, right? There's a lot of office space that is never going to be utilized again. Yeah. Hey guys, um, this has been a ton of fun. I'm really sorry. I've, I've got to run here. Uh, but James, thank you for coming on the show. Mark, as always, best hour of my week. Thanks guys. Thank awesome. you very much. Thanks. Safe flight, Mike. Bye.